Father, we thank you for the vision of Jesus that you've been giving us so far in this revelation. Thank you that he is supreme, he is victor, he is glorious, um, he is with us, he is in charge. And we pray that um, as we look at this next section that uh, you would help us to see how amazing Jesus is and that that would shape how we live today. Amen. Amen. At any one point in time around the world, there's a war going on. Uh, how many do you reckon are going on at the moment? I don't know. 20? 50? 500, a bit less than that. 40? 40, 100? Somewhere in between all of those. Um, uh, I looked on Wikipedia and some other places. Um, uh, but at the moment, there's 65 wars going on. Um, but that's a lot, isn't it? Uh, you know, if you think that there's two sides to each war, maybe more, you know, there's at least 130 different um, groups of people fighting. Um, some of these wars have been going on for decades. I mean, in Australia, we're pretty sheltered from it all. Uh, the closest we get to it is our computer or our TV screens. Uh, there's all sorts of complex reasons behind uh, why these wars are there, whether it's political or, or racial or religious. Uh, but the heart, at the heart of all of our conflict is really the rejection of God. It's refusing to live His way. It's through sin that we war with each other. And sometimes Christians are the cause of it. And it's just terrible. Uh, but you might be wondering, what is the point of it all? Why is God letting it continue? Why doesn't he stop it? In Revelation, John gives us a glimpse uh, into the future, into the eternal kingdom of God. He, he shows us the new heavens and the new earth that we're told is coming. It'll be a place where there is no more war, no more conflict or fighting. It'll be a place of, of peace and love and unity. But if Jesus has been victorious at the cross 2,000 years ago, if he has conquered sin and death... Why is war and suffering still going on? I wonder if you've asked yourself that question. We've seen in this series so far that God's purpose for giving John this vision of revelation is to encourage Christians to persevere to the end, to keep going until Jesus returns, despite the suffering and the persecution they face. Last week in chapters 4 and 5, we were taken up into the throne room of God in heaven. There we saw Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the victor, the champion, the hero. But he didn't look like a lion, did he? He looked like a slaughtered lamb. But it was because he looked like this that he alone is worthy to open the scroll that, that God, that his father, had in his hand on the throne. Jesus alone was worthy to open this scroll because he looked like the dead lamb. Because he was the one who was slaughtered and redeemed people for God by his blood. Now, over the chapters that we're looking at tonight, chapters 6 to 11, Jesus reveals to us the contents of that scroll. And it's a pretty big chunk that we're going through, so we're not going to be able to get into all the details. Um, so I want to kind of paint uh, the big picture for you so you can see how the details fit into that. We're going to go fairly slowly through chapters 6 and 7 and, and kind of rush through things um, towards the end. Uh, but it, we'll see here how Jesus is actually in control of all of history, the past, the present, the future. And because of that, we can live securely and confidently today. So let's get into it, shall we? Chapter 6, well, it begins with Jesus opening the first scroll, uh, the first seal of the scroll. 
And the first four seals are about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Sounds like an awesome name for a movie, doesn't it? Four horsemen of the apocalypse, what kind of movie I'd like to see anyway. Um, but these four horsemen, um, remember apocalypse, it simply means revelation. Now that's the name, the title given to this book, the apocalypse, revelation. And, and it just simply means to reveal. So what are these horsemen of the revelation reveal? Well, the first seal is opened and a white horse comes charging out. Uh, white here, it symbolises conquest. The rider has a bow, uh, has a crown that was given to him, and he went out and conquered. So here is some kind of a ruler who goes out to make war, and, and they're victorious. Then the second seal is opened, and out charges a fiery red one. Um, it's got to be the fastest one, doesn't it? And, and this horseman, what does he do? Well, he takes peace away from the world, plunges the world into war. The third seal brings out the black horse. The third horseman, he is carrying scales in verse 5. Um, now, they're not scales like we connect with the legal system. Uh, you can, as you keep reading on, you see it's to weigh out the daily rations of food. And so this one is about famine. And you know, the prices there, they're just stupid. A handful of wheat costs a day's wages, it says, a denarius. So this third seal with a black horse, it means there's going to be famine in the land, deprivation. And then the flame-coloured horse comes out, um, the pale green one, um, and this one is the colour of death. Uh, in my days as a radiographer, I know that um, <laughs> that colour is what you see in, in a dead body. Uh, there's nothing else like it. It's that pale green kind of colour. This horseman brings death. Now, what's the deal with the horses and the horsemen? Well, it's a picture of what we see in the time between when Jesus was raised from the dead and when he returns, in between the first and second coming, the last days, as we call it, uh, the present evil age, today. It's talking about the time now. And these images, they're actually, of these horsemen and, and the, the stuff that goes on with them, these images are nothing new to those who know their Bibles. Because like John usually does, he picks up his imagery from the Old Testament. So the four horses, they appear in Zechariah chapter 6. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 14, are four judgments that God sends out of war and plague and death and wild animals. The Old Testament, it uses this imagery to point to the last days when God will finally bring his kingdom to earth. But as we get to the New Testament, the New Testament shows us that the last days spans between Jesus' first and second coming. Now these horsemen, they show us what life is like in these last days. Rulers will come bent on conquest. They'll wage war. Famine and plague and death will follow. Now if you looked over history, this is exactly what you see. I, um, not, it's not talking about particular, a particular event or series of events, but all of it. And so you see warlords, bucket loads of them. You know, Stalin and Hitler and Genghis Khan and Kony and Mugabe and Pol Pot. In 1918, there was the worldwide flu pandemic. 50 million dead. The Black Plague in Europe in the 1300s, somewhere between 75 and 200 million died. The potato famine in Ireland, they ran out of spuds, would you believe, in 1874. One million died. World War II, 50 million died. John's vision of these horsemen, 
It's showing us what life is like until Jesus returns. There's going to be war and conquest. There's going to be um, famines and plagues and all sorts of things. Now, even Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 24. Um, he says there'll be wars, there'll be rumours of wars, there'll be famines, there'll be earthquakes. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed at this, because these things must take place. The end is not yet. The end is not yet, Jesus says, even though you see those things. And so we see this in our Revelation verses too, that the end is, is not here in, uh, with these horsemen. What the horsemen do is not total annihilation. In verse 6, there's the commander, don't harm the olive oil and the wine. And there's some preservation going on there. In verse 8, there's the command that death will only come to a quarter of the earth. That's actually a good thing. It's not all of the earth. So it isn't speaking about the final day of judgment with these horsemen, but the lead up to it. The time between Jesus' first and second coming. And in that time, we see God restraining the evil. Restraining the evil of these four horsemen. He's only letting them go so far and no further. Um, even though there's great tyranny and suffering, we see here Jesus is still in control. Um, what about the people of God during this time? Well, they're all caught up in it as well. Um, just like we saw back in chapters 2 and 3 a couple of weeks ago, God's people, they also suffer. Um, they suffer from wars and, and famines as well. But they're also persecuted. They're also martyred as they stand firm in the gospel. And that's what we hear as, as the fifth seal is opened. We hear their voice. <laughs> In verse 9, there we see God's people who have been slaughtered because of their testimony about Jesus. They didn't deny Jesus and they were killed for it. And in this fifth seal, we see God is preserving them, he's protecting them under the altar in heaven. But they're crying out. They're crying out, how much longer, Lord? In verse 10. They're crying out for justice, for wrongs to be righted, for there to be an end to suffering at the hands of these horsemen. They're given a white robe in verse 11. Yeah, they're conquerors too. They're, they're pure and blameless. But they're told to wait. Wait a little longer. Like us. They're crying out, you know, why, Jesus, aren't you stopping this? Why aren't you bringing justice now? If you're victorious, why is this pain and, and suffering still going on? Verse 11 gives us the hard truth. It says that there's still more Christians to be killed. The judgment day is delayed until that number is complete. Now that's a pretty full-on answer, isn't it? Jesus is holding off coming back until more Christians are killed. Very clearly, the church of Jesus does not escape persecution, nor the destruction reaped by these four horsemen. And we Aussies don't really get the slaughter of God's people through history. Now, occasionally, we, we see the photos or videos of on social media of beheadings and so on. But we never hear of the thousands of everyday Christians rotting to death in, in the prisons of, of North Korea or in the Middle East. We don't hear about the thousands starving in refugee camps or those who are grieving as, as loved ones are, are raped or slaughtered before their eyes in, as villages are raided in Africa. All because they refuse to deny Jesus we don't hear their voices, do we? But they would rather suffer and die than disown their king. The number of slaughtered Christians is ever increasing under the altar we see here. So the fact that we're still breathing today 
means that there's still more to come. It's a slap in the face to our petty rumblings, isn't it? The things we complain about today, and I'm oh, having a bad day because my internet's so slow, or there's a hold-up at Macca's and I'm not getting my fast food fast. I have so much pressure for this assignment or that honours project or, 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 or prac placement, whatever it is. As we read Revelation, Jesus is giving us a reality check. I want you to let that image of God's precious martyrs crying out for Jesus' return. Fill your mind with that when you're stressed or, or frustrated by earthly pressures, by our, third, uh, our first world problems. Our life is very comfortable. And it can lead us to forget why Jesus hasn't yet returned. I wonder, do you long for justice like those martyrs under the altar in heaven? For the pain and suffering and death to end? Well, if you do long for it, you long for the judgment day. Judgment is a good thing to be crying out for here. It's right to want justice. But it's only good if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Only if that judgment isn't coming for you. Now the sixth and the seventh seals that follow, um, we see the judgment day finally arriving. This is the answer to the cry of the faithful martyrs in the fifth seal. And as these two seals are opened, now the seventh only comes in chapter 8 after a long interlude in chapter 7. But as these two seals, the sixth and the seventh ones, are opened, God brings his final judgment on those who reject him. And here, again, we see the language of the Old Testament. The day of the Lord arrives. So in verse 12, there'll be a violent earthquake. The sun turns black. The entire moon looks like blood. Stars fall from the sky to the earth. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. Every mountain and island is moved. This is pretty hectic stuff, isn't it? But this is how the Old Testament depicts the great and terrible day of the Lord, a day of total destruction. Now, of course, this language is symbolic. Stars won't literally fall to the earth. They're light years away. In any case, they're heaps bigger than the earth too. They're hundreds, thousands times bigger. You know, they're not all going to fall to the earth. The sky isn't a solid sheet that can be just you know, rolled up like a durry or, or whatever. <laughs> but, this is a way of saying it's going to be a massive upheaval. It's going to be unmistakable. Everyone will know this is happening. And like the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that destroyed Pompeii and, and Herculaneum, uh, did you know that that volcano, you've heard of Pompeii and stuff, haven't you? So, yeah. Did you know that that volcano happened about 15 years before Revelation was written? Everyone would have known at that time you know, in that region, about Vesuvius, hey? There would have been earthquakes, there would have been ash clouds that darken the sun, makes the moon turn red, chunks of ash and, and um, you know, pumice or whatever falling from the skies. The day of the Lord, the judgment day, the day of Jesus' return will not be missed. It'll be catastrophic. And all the people of earth, no matter their rank or title, they will run to the hills, to the caves, to the mountains to escape. But it's not because of the devastation. It's not because of the things that might be happening around, around the world. Have a look in verse 15 with me. 
Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They're fleeing, not because of some big volcano or or crazy stuff going on. They're fleeing because of the wrath of the Lamb. They're scared of Jesus. Just picture that for a moment. These people would rather be crushed alive by rocks than face up to Jesus. You might remember a few years ago, the two Tasmanians trapped down the Beaconsfield mine, uh, Brant Webb and Todd Russell. Uh, it's a miracle that they got out of, out, out of it alive. Um, you know, I couldn't think of anything worse being trapped right down underneath the earth. You know, I'm, I'm claustrophobic. Um, but that is what these people in Revelation would rather on the day of the Lord. They would rather be stuck underground and crushed alive by rocks than face up to Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb. I wonder if you've ever had that niggling feeling that one day you'll have to pay for your wrongs. To give account for them. You know, every last thing that you've, you've said or done or thought. Now, that feeling that most people try and suppress and try and get on with life and, and try and forget about. On this day of the Lord, uh, our worst nightmares come true. And hiding from Jesus really isn't going to work. And on that day, suddenly death by rock crushing seems more appealing than facing Jesus. Jesus is returning. Where will you be on that day? Will you be hiding in the caves or safe under the altar in heaven, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, not facing the judgment? And will you be safe with the 144,000 gathered around the throne of God in chapter 7, part of that vast multitude from every tribe and nation and people. Now amidst the destruction of the day of the Lord with uh, seals seven, uh, 6 and 7 being opened, in the middle lies chapter 7. And chapter 7 shows us where God's people will be on that day. They'll be protected by God himself. And so you'll notice in chapter 7 that there's these two crowds, the 144,000 from every tribe of Israel in verse 4. And in verse 9, there's the vast multitude from every nation on earth. Now, who are these people? Are they the same group? Are they two different groups? People come with all sorts of explanations for it, but let me tell you why I reckon they're the same group. Um, The first reason is in chapter 14 of Revelation, the 144,000 there are described in a bunch of different ways. Um, They're described there as those with God the Father's name written on their foreheads. They're described as the redeemed of the earth. They're described as the ones who follow the Lamb. And they're described as the redeemed from the human race. From the human race. There's no Jew or non-Jew distinction there. And the 144,000 in chapter 14 implies they're from every nation. That's the first reason. Second reason why I reckon the 144,000 and the vast multitude are the same group um, comes from other parts of the New Testament, from New Testament theology. Um, uh, Romans chapter 9 is one place. But we looked at Galatians 6.16 a few weeks ago in our growth groups. And there it it talks about the church being the true Israel, the Israel of God. The church is made up of both Jew and non-Jew. 
in Galatians, in that same letter, chapter 3, verse 28, it says, There is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so in New Testament theology, the church is made up of both Old Testament Jews and New Testament Christians. That's the second reason. Third reason, um, if you go back to Revelation chapter 7, in verse 4, if you look closely there, John heard the number sealed. But then as he looks, he sees in verse 9 a vast multitude. He said he hears 144,000, that number being given to him, but he sees an uncountable crowd. So that's why I think they're the same group. All of those who have faith in God, all those who believe in the Lamb. Uh, it's talking about every believer. So what is with that number 144,000? And what's it doing there? Well, if you listen to the Jehovah's Witnesses who come and knock on your door, they'll say it's them. They're the 144,000. But sorry, um, all those spots have been filled back in the 1930s. Um, and so the 144,000, they go and live up in heaven with God. Um, but if you want to be one of them, well, you get to live and, and settle down on earth um, in the new creation. Uh, so they kind of separate heaven and earth and the new creation. Um, but if you go and read chapter 21, you know, there's no divide between heaven and earth. Uh, once Jesus returns, um, God makes his dwelling place with mankind, with everyone. Heaven comes to earth. It's extraordinary. Um, JWs are totally wrong on that point. Many other ones as well. Um, <laughs> Um, as we've seen throughout Revelation, uh, we can't take things literally in this book. Uh, the number 12, it, it's symbolic of, of uh, God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, uh, the number 1,000. It simply just means a, a big number. And so you know, do the symbolic math. It represents the entirety of God's people. And there's a truckload of them. Now, don't worry about missing out on heaven and not being one of the 144,000. You are part of them. There's plenty of room for all of us in the new heavens and new earth. And the great news is, is that heaven is going to be full of people from every nation. Every nation. Um, you know, Jesus isn't our white homeboy. <laughs> he made every nation. He doesn't belong just to us. He, he made every nation. God is the father of every nation. And most likely, you know, white Anglos... Um, you'd probably be the minority in heaven. I wonder if you love multiculturalism. If you're a Christian, you should. Because being mono is unchristian. It's anti-the gospel. And, you know, and if every nation was like Aussie culture, God help us. <laughs> um, but how fair dinkum are you about this? <laughs> Do you love people from other cultures? Do you treat them with the same dignity and respect that you would your own? Do you welcome those who look and sound different to you, especially here at Unichurch? The church, by definition, is multicultural. So don't fight God on this. And here at Uni, we have a wonderful opportunity to show heaven on earth by embracing our brothers and sisters from around the world. I want to ask you, when was the last time you spoke to one of our international students who are part of of Christian fellowship. Did you know that there are some? Have you noticed even that, that they haven't been around much lately? Could it be that we've sinned grievously? 
and that we've not loved them as Jesus has? When was the last time you invited an international student over for a meal? Now put yourself in their shoes for a moment. How would you like them to treat you if you were studying in their country? Heaven is a wonderful demonstration of the gospel where people from all nations will gather around the throne of our Saviour. And our earthly gatherings in churches really should embrace that. They should represent that. So that's why I want to invite you again, come and pray with us at the IFES International Day of Prayer. It's a great thing to be doing. At the end of chapter 7, just before the final seal is opened, and just before the seven trumpets begin to blast, we're shown what heaven will be like. No need to guess. It'll be filled with multitudes from every nation. Those who, as verse 14 says, have come out of the great tribulation. Now, the great tribulation is not just a particular time in the future. Um, it simply means the great trouble. And it's what the four horsemen have inflicted. It's the same tribulation that we read of back in chapter 3, verse 10. The, the present troubles of the churches that John was writing to. Their present tribulation. And even John himself, chapter 1, verse 9, um, he writes to them with his current tribulations in mind. Um, so heaven is, is filled with those who have endured as followers of Jesus. Those who have washed in his blood, verse 14. But only those who have washed in his blood. That's the only way to avoid the coming wrath on the day of the Lord. And washing in the blood of Jesus, it was in the song that we sang just before. Uh, it's a symbolic way of saying that his death was your death. The judgment that you deserve, that's on your head on the day when Jesus returns, was taken by Jesus on the cross. Your sin on him. And in return he gives you forgiveness. He makes you white. His blood washes you white. He declares you righteous. And on that day of judgment when he returns, you will be safe. Because your debt will have been paid. It gives us great confidence for the future. And because of that in verse 15, these people are before the throne of God, serving him day and night. Here we see Jesus is at the centre of everything. Verse 17, the Lamb is at the centre of the throne. And being a Christian, it means that your life is centred on Jesus, not on yourself. It means you no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you. Life is no longer about you, but about serving Jesus. And for those people, they're protected by the Lamb. They'll live in a place where there'll be no more hunger, no thirsting, no tears. They're all images of heaven that are fleshed out in more detail in chapter 21. We'll come to in a few weeks' time. But what a contrast this is, hey? What a contrast to the suffering and persecution of Christians during the Great Tribulation, during our time now. What a comfort to the faithful witnesses who refuse to denounce Jesus and they suffer for it. You know, those who head off on the mission field knowing that they probably won't return. Or those in many countries today who, who face um, massive injustice because of Jesus. They're heavily taxed. They are mocked and beaten and ridiculed. They're driven from their homes and their countries. But what a comfort this is, this picture of heaven to those who and maybe passed over for promotion at work because they don't worship the organisation. They haven't sold their soul to their boss. Or those ridiculed because they stay at home and care for their family rather than pursue a career. 
What a comfort this picture of heaven is, is, is to those who refuse to cheat on assignments and exams. Or to those who speak up for Jesus when he's slandered in lectures. Or to those who keep the speed limit rather than acting cool with their mates. And this glimpse of heaven encourages believers to keep going despite what they cop. Despite what it might cost them. You might have had a really bad week this week. Whether it's from your own sin or the sin of others. But in the new creation there will be nothing like this. Jesus himself, verse 17, will wipe away every single tear. And isn't that a good day to look forward to? Now we're going to have to speed things up a bit as we get to the trumpet blasts and here as the seals finish, um, uh, we've reached the judgment day, the trumpets then begin to blast, but we're not looking into the next event in a series of events before Jesus returns. You know, they're not end-on events, you know, we don't have the seals being opened and then the trumpets come. We actually go back to the start again, to the time of the first seals with the four horsemen, the last days. I want to show you why it's not chronological jumping from the seals to the trumpets. Um, if you try and read Revelation as a straight line of history, you're bound to get into all sorts of trouble. But back in chapter 6, do you remember what happened to the sun and the moon and the stars? They turned black, didn't they? The moon turned to blood, stars fell from the sky. But in chapter 8, verse 12, if you look there, as the fourth trumpet sounds, well, the sun and the moon and the stars are back again. They're back in play. And only a third of them is destroyed. So what's happening with the seven seals and seven trumpets is not successive events. They're, they're the same events shown from different angles. And that's what we see happening throughout Revelation. So as these four trumpets sound uh, at the start of chapter 8, well, the cosmos is thrown into chaos. Uh, the language here is similar to the plagues of Egypt, as hail and blood and vegetation is destroyed. You'll see a third of the trees are destroyed, a third of the living creatures die, a third of the water becomes bitter, a third of the sun and the moon are darkened. Um, in some ways, this is what's been happening ever since creation, that, or, or since the fall. The natural world has been in decay. And with trumpets, they symbolise judgement in the Bible, um, the cosmic chaos and decay of the world that's, that's been happening since Genesis 3 and the fall is God's judgment being made within history. But then in verse 13, we, you get this eagle flying overhead and this eagle, eagle speaks. Eagle says, you think this is bad? It's about to get much worse because there's three more trumpets to sound. It's not just about the created world in chaos, but there's going to be spiritual torture as well. So it happens with the, the next trumpets. The fifth trumpet blows, a star falls from heaven to earth, and here it's talking about Satan. He's got a key, he opens up the abyss, uh, all this smoke comes out, and these freaky locusts, um, if you read there, these locusts, they've got gold crowns, they've got men's faces, women's hair, it's pretty scary, lion's teeth, <laughs> They've got scorpion tails. And the locusts, if you, if you look, they're sent not to be vegetarians, but they were sent to torment people. But only those who don't have God's mark on their forehead, verses 4 and 5. We see here, Satan, he goes and torments his own people. The sixth trumpet sounds, chapter 9, verse 13. 
um, an army on horses is released from the Euphrates um, as the river, uh, um, and it's a tra traditional place of God's enemies in the Old Testament. And their number, it's, it's huge. It's too great to care. 200 million horses come out. They're breathing fire and smoke and sulfur. And all of this, again, is picture language of the horrors that, that life on earth can bring. Wars and plagues and distraction. But what's the point of all of this happening? Have a look in verse 20 and 21. Uh, the rest of the people, those who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood which are not able to see, hear or walk in contrast to God who can. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Now all of this chaos and conflict going on in the world it, it was to lead them to repentance. But instead they refused to repent. They hardened their hearts towards God. And what about people, God's people, during this time? Again, we have another interlude between the sixth and the seventh things, this time between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. In chapter 10, we see another scroll. Um, John is to eat this scroll. And um, again, this is something that's happened in the Old Testament already. The prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah were told to do the same thing. Eat the scroll, it'll be sweet in your mouth, verse 9, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. And what this is about is proclaiming God's message. And John is told to prophesy again. Prophesy, keep speaking God's message of salvation. Despite all of the chaos around, despite people rejecting God and his message, though this message is sweet, it'll be met with resistance. It'll be bitter. People won't like to hear it. And the start of chapter 11, um, this is still in the, in the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, here we see the church being God's witness in the world. The church there will prophesy. They will be the witness in the world. That is, they'll, they'll testify to Jesus and to the word of God. That's what prophecy means in, in Revelation, to testify about Jesus and the word of God. Uh, but they're going to be met with resistance. It's going to be led by the beast from the abyss, that is Satan. Um, the Satan is, is already at work in the world at work through the anti-God anti authorities. And they'll kill God's people, verse 7. The church here, it'll appear defeated. There'll be bodies lying all around and, 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 and the people against God will be celebrating. But we see there that the, the, the number of Christians then will have been fulfilled. Remember we saw that back in, in chapter, uh, chapter 6. Where the saints, the martyrs were crying out, when is it going to happen, Jesus? When are you going to come back? When all the Christians have been killed, that will be killed. And verse 11 shows that it only appears that way. It only appears that the church has failed, the church is defeated, because they're all going to come back to life. The dead in Christ will be raised. The seventh trumpet will sound then in verse 15. The judgment day will have arrived. The kingdom of the Lamb will finally be established, verse 17. The servants of God will, will they will be rewarded with eternal life, we see there. And those against Jesus will face his wrath. 
So what, what is this part of Revelation about? Chapter 6 to 11. What is it really about? It's still about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's still about the Lamb who reigns. Despite all the chaos and pain and suffering going in this, on in this world, Jesus is still in control. And he wants his people to do two things until he returns. Two things. First thing is to stay strong. Keep enduring. Don't give up. Despite what's going on in the world around us, he wants us to keep our eyes on him. Keep living for Jesus. Bad things are going to happen, uh, even to God's people. But the judgment day is coming. And on that day, we will see God's perfect justice being rolled out. And on that day, God's people will enter paradise and forever be in, in joy and, and peace and love and unity and perfection. That's the first thing. Stay strong, keep enduring, don't give up. Jesus is in control. Second thing that Jesus wants us to do until he returns is to keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep living it out. Keep speaking it. Jesus is delaying his return so that more people can be saved. The only way people are saved is through the gospel message. The blood of the Lamb rescues us from his coming wrath. And even though uh, God's people might be killed for this message, God is still in control. He is still faithful to his promises. And you know... It's extraordinary. God saves people through ordinary punters like you and me. Just as we go about testifying to Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, but the Lamb who also reigns. I want you to come with me to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to close with some of Jesus' words here. Matthew 24 verse 3. funny how Jesus' words in Revelation are very similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 3. Uh, while Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Messiah. They'll deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you're not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over for persecution and they will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will take offence, betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. Now look at verse 14. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Stay strong in Jesus. Keep proclaiming his gospel. The Lord reigns. The Lamb reigns. You might have some questions for me now. 
and uh, right here. Oh, Joe, actually got one for me. It says it's waiting for the number to be fulfilled that um, killed. Is it likely to be like an actual number that he's waiting for, or is that just... Yep. God knows who are his. Um, he knows, we don't know. Um, which is why we keep um, testifying about Jesus. Um, so who knows, the next person you tell the gospel to, they come to Jesus, it might be it. If you long for Jesus to come back, keep telling people about him. It's the surest, quickest way to get him to return. Brenton? Um, just with the, the trumpets and the idea of the saints under the altar and stuff like that, in chapter 8, before you kind of launch into that seven trumpets thing, Yep. Um, it talks about this altar and the golden censer, uh, the golden censer and the incense and all that. And it kind of sounds like, like is this is this kind of saying these are the prayers of the saints, so of the people who are in the tribulation, mm -hmm. and they're praying and calling for justice, and then the censer's thrown down, and is that kind of word going? Yeah, you're, I've heard your prayers, and here's the judgment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, so is it as um, yeah, as you see in, in verse five, um, the incense burner filled it with fire from the altar, that is from the prayers of the saints that are on there, and then that's hurled back down to earth. That is God answering the prayers of the saints under the throne, that the judgment day has come where God is going to to right all the wrongs. Right, well, you've got your communication cards there, and uh, so if you've got other questions, uh, you're welcome to write those down, and uh, I'll try and get back to you through the week. Uh, join me in prayer as we give thanks to our risen Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is in control, despite all the chaos suffering and pain in our world and in our lives. Thank you that in your kindness you sent Jesus into this world to rescue us from it, to bring salvation, to put an end to all this. We thank you that in Jesus we can be safe from the coming wrath as we wash ourselves in his Help us to find our refuge and our security in him. Help us to long for justice, long for heaven where, where all of that will be done away with, where there will be no more tears or pain or suffering. As we long for that day, Father, help us stay strong. Help us to keep proclaiming the good news of Jesus risen from the dead. Even when it gets thrown back in our face. Because Jesus really is our only hope. He is the Lamb who reigns.